0: Um, my life is fairly simple, which may shock some of you, and any of you who uh, spend any time with me will wonder how I managed to make it so complex. But life's fairly simple for me, and at home particularly so. Simple, not easy. So if Laura asks you, I said it was simple, but not easy. Uh, the reason it's simple is this. We have um, a child, we have a dog, and we have a rabbit, which... You know, it's a fairly good mix, and all three of them have their demands. But on a whole, life is easy. The rule is, me and Laura make sure that all three of them are fed, watered, clean, and can sleep. That's pretty much the priority that we have. We look after them, from organizing things to making sure there's someone to let the dog out if we're away. All of those things, it's very simple. Because we're in charge. We make the rules. All of them follow us-ish, but we make the rules. And it is simple. And the reason I keep talking about the fact it's simple is because I am well aware there is a time coming where simple will be something of a memory. Simple will be something that we remember with fondness because there will be those huge questions that we need to answer, such as, at what age is it okay for Evie to go for a sleepover at her friends? What age is it okay for her to go out to McDonald's? With her friends. Burger King, KFC, other kind of food organizations are available. And then the huge one. This one was one that I wrestled with my parents for years. At what age is it okay for her to stay home alone? They are huge questions. They are questions that break simplicity because they are multi-layered. They are huge, huge points. I have to accept that she's growing up. And in doing so, I have to accept that she's going to want more freedom. She's going to want to develop who she is. Some days, that can't come soon enough when I'm trying to leave the house and 30 minutes later I am still trying to catch her to put shoes on. And then other days, all I want is for her to stay curled up for me to be able to continue to feed her her bottle. But I know that as she grows, I need to give her bits of responsibility so that she can learn how to use it. She can develop it. So when that first opportunity comes, in many, many years' time for her to stay home alone, I have a checklist, I've put it in place already, I think it's good. Did she have a house party? One, this is a huge decision right there. Second, for any reason, did she need to contact the emergency services? That's like a deal breaker for future house parties and such like. The second one, uh, sorry, the third one, did she clean the whole house? Because that technically could negate the house party if the house has ended up clean. And then finally, did she stay settled in with her favorite book, drinking tea, curled up on the sofa? Which is what we're praying for. (laughs) But it's interesting because I know I'm going to need to release that responsibility to her. And it may seem like it's a long way off. But how I treat her now how I respond to the little things she does now are going to speak volumes to how she views the responsibility she's given. It's going to speak volumes as to how she feels like she can come to me when she makes a mistake. It's going to affect how the relationship moves forward. Will she feel like I've truly released her or will she assume that I've just stayed in the garden for the whole time telling her she's home alone, which has also crossed my mind? It's about relationship. It's more than simply just each individual action. It's about something of growing, of developing, and the relationship that she has with me. The passage Mel's going to come and read now looks at this through a different lens of relationship, of responsibility, and our response to God. So I'm going to invite Mel to come and read for us.
1: This morning's reading is Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 14 and ending at 27. The parable of the talents, and in the Pew Bibles it's page 995, and the footnote says a talent was worth several hundred pounds. So if you don't don't know how much a talent is, that's roughly how much it was. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them to one he gave five talents of money to another two talents and to another one talent each according to his ability then he went on his journey the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more so also the one with the two talents gained two more but the man who had received the one talent went off dug a hole in the ground ...and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned... ...and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents... ...brought the other five. "'Master,' he said, "'you entrusted me with five talents. "'See, I have gained five more.' His master replied, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. "'You have been faithful with a few things. "'I will put you in charge of many things.' Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. ''Master,'' he said, ''I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you.'' His master replied, ''You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers.'' so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest.
0: Thank you very much, Mel. Again, we have another incredibly rich parable, a parable that I'm sure we've engaged with time and time again, yet within this richness, in this depth, I don't think we're just hearing about the importance of high interest bank accounts. We're not hearing that holidays are bad, I also like this idea that I came across, that this is not an example of a biblical dragon's den. This is not about those things. There is a layer to it which covers things like that, but I think it's about something else. I want us to look and see how these words speak directly into our lives now. How do these words affect our lives right now? How, like when a parent develops a relationship with their child, how does that work? How does that look as it grows, as it develops, as opportunities come? The, version that, the translation that I was using read like this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one, each according to his abilities. Then he went on his journey. As Mel read, she used a translation that said "talents." I didn't ask Mel to footnote what talents are worth, but I love that she did, because it wasn't the number that I had from the bits that I'd read. And on a whole, as we look across, talents varied how much they were worth. They were used as a a weight of something. Sometimes they were to represent a coinage. Uh, In one area that I looked, I saw that it was 20 years worth of laboring was a single talent. So you begin to understand that this was a chunky wealth that was being given to them. This was a significant thing. And yet I love that as Jesus breaks it down and explains this story, he doesn't define the worth of the talents. Each individual talent isn't given a worth. He doesn't tell us what it adds up to. I find that hugely encouraging because for some of us, we dismiss ourselves as not good enough. For some of us, we find ourselves unusual. We don't fit in. We might be too old. We might be too young. We don't match up and we don't add up. We don't feel like what we have brings worth. But there is a truth right here that I pray we hear and we believe. Jesus does not define the talents. But that does not make them any less worthwhile. Jesus doesn't tell us what each one adds up to, but that doesn't diminish it. In other words, it reads like this, just because you don't see how you can play a part, how you can be involved or do anything of worth, does not mean you're worthless. Just because you don't see it does not mean you're worthless, or the gifts and abilities you have aren't priceless. Jesus does not define each Individual talent. And I believe that is something for us to hear now. Jesus is not looking at you and defining you and saying, you don't fit, it doesn't work, it doesn't work for me. What he's saying is, you know what, actually, it looks completely different. Looks completely different. And this point for me is drawn beautifully together in that psalm that I often refer to You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, the individual, God didn't mess up, he didn't make a mistake, he knew exactly what he was doing when he crafted you and gifted you. And because you don't understand it, you don't feel like it's got value, does not mean it is worthless. You and all that you bring to the table, each one of you, every individual in this room, what you bring to the table is an undefined amount of worth. An undefined amount of talent waiting to be unleashed. So how does all that tie together? I love that we can make that point. That across many great thinkers, they're not sure how much a talent adds up to. I think that's a fair resemblance of church. I look out and I'm not sure what this adds up to. But it makes a massive difference in people's lives. So how does it tie together? To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two, another one, each according to his ability. I don't know if you're like me or not, but we want to bang on about amounts. We want to bang on about amounts. We want it to be big. We want it to be number-based. We want to be able to manage it. We are drawn to the five. I wonder how many of us, when we read it, are drawn to the five. That's the first thing we hear. I know it's the first one of the list, but it's the one we get hung up on. I want to be a five. You know what? I want to be a five. But there is a key line in this, a huge line, and it is this, according to his ability. According to his ability, they aren't given gifts randomly. They aren't given these talents just because one of them arrived early for work that day. They are given according to his ability. And this is key because of this. Your life is not my life. Your life is not my life. Your race is not my race. So just because you have something I do I don't doesn't mean I need to compare myself to you. You do not need to look sideways across church and think, "Man, they totally have 5 and I only have 2 and I wish." That's not how this is. This is about being an individual. To some 5 is more. For others it would be a huge burden. To some, two is the perfect amount to balance work and life and relationships and everything else. Two is exactly what you need with everything else that life throws at you. But for some, two wouldn't scratch the itch. You'd feel like there was more. For some, one would feel like a huge underselling of the talent that we bring to the table. Yet for others, one would be more than we ever felt like we deserved and we would treasure it with all that we have. In a generation where the need to filter photos, to post the best version of our lives online, this truth needs to hit home. It is not about comparisons. It's not about what I have and that you don't have. It's about what we as the individual have and what we do with it. So please do not get caught in that game of looking at the five and going, five is totally worth more and I totally want to be a five in life because for five, sorry, for some, five would crush us. So that line is crucial to to his ability, to the individual. It wasn't about what the other two were doing. It was about what the one could manage. One is not less than five. If you're one, is perfect and priceless. So please, I want to dispel this imagery that sometimes we get when we look at this parable, that it's all about value. It's all about how much, what they did with the big numbers, not with the little numbers. That's not what I see here. It's about this question. What has God given you, the individual? What has he given you? And as we read on, what are you going to do with it? You don't answer to me. You don't answer to the people sat next to you. This is that relationship with God. What are you going to do with what it is that he has given you? The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. I wonder which one you feel like you relate to the most. When you look across life, which one would you feel most comfortable with? That section is important, but I want to look at how these people responded to those actions. I want us to look at how they responded. The gentleman with five, this is his encounter with the master. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. The one with two responded like this. The man, who had, um, sorry, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. There is a key word in both of these responses. It features in all three responses, but in these two responses especially, it is huge. One word in amongst 15. Both men said 15 words. And there is one that I think is crucial. One word that gives us an understanding of just how they viewed what they had, but also how they viewed the master. That one word is key, and I believe that one word is the word see. The word see. It tells us about the person, about the relationship that they had with the master. There is an eager ambition within them to show what they have done. Not simply just to bring what had happened, the money or the talents or whatever it is, to bring it to the table and just walk off. No, they wanted to talk to the master. They wanted to explain what had happened. They wanted to open it up. This was more than just talents. This was relationship. They were pleased with what they'd done and they wanted to journey that with the master. There is a pride and a pleasure in the process as well as the presentation. And of the master, we see through this um, conversation that he is approachable. They feel like they can approach the master, that they can bring something to the table, that they can journey it with him. He is one of embrace, of companionship as much as leadership. There is relationship in place there. for some of you this might be a key line the talent the talent that these two had that they brought back isn't something to be ashamed of the things that you're good at don't be ashamed of them it isn't simply something to do please never devalue what it is that you bring to the table you don't just do it because you can it is a wonderful wonderful thing it's something to delight in it's something to grow in Who you are, who you've made to be, is something to thrive in, not just simply survive. I say that with a huge level of confidence because we see with the third individual what it looks like when we get it wrong. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you had not sown, gathering where you had not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out, hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. He uses 44 words to say the same thing as the other two. This is the biblical definition of beating around the bush, avoiding the point, buttering up the situation. 44 words when we see before that so few would have sufficed. He stands in stark contradiction to the other two, not because necessarily of what he did, but because of the example it sets of the relationship that he had with the master. The way that he viewed the master in this whole story is key. I Don't know if you've considered this, but the other two had way more to lose. They had way more to lose, way more to put on the line, but they came expectant and excited. Whereas we read in this third account, a person who views the master as someone who is fierce, someone to fear. Someone who's looking for faults and mistakes that we make and is ready to jump on them and punish. So I want to challenge us this morning and I want you to hear this. It applies to my life as much as I believe it applies to other lives in here. Do you use God as an excuse for your own shortfallings? Do you use God as the excuse for your own shortfallings? Do you blame God? Maybe you blame the church for the fact that you aren't pushing through with the talents and the gifts that God's given you. Because that's what the third gentleman is doing. We see a wonderful biblical example of someone who says, you know what? You're not fair. You didn't give me enough chances. Whatever it is. But when we see that individual speak, what we see is excuse after excuse after excuse for not using what they'd been given it terrifies me to think that that might be me one day that I might find myself stood there saying you know what I'm so afraid of how you might respond to me God that I'd rather blame you for the fact that I didn't do anything I'd rather sit here and feel like I'm safe than step out and take a risk for you because that's what we see that's what we see in this third example not forget, we are given what we, the individual, were designed to receive and to use. You were given that by God because he knew that you could cope with it, and you could use it, and you could flourish with it, and you could make it do incredibly untold things. And yet we find ourselves making excuses. Oh God, I didn't... If I said it and it went wrong, it would embarrass me, it would embarrass the church, it would embarrass you. That's about more. That's about that relationship we have. If we, if I don't use the talents and the gifts that God's given me, if you don't use the gifts and the talents laid before you, that is not on a creator God, it is on you. And no amount of words will cover up the fact that it lands squarely at our feet. Three people, three examples, three different amounts of talents, but one master, one master who gave them what they could manage. So what are you going to do with what you've got? What are you going to do with what you've got? Ah, oh, Tim, I'm only good at making tea and coffee. Cool. Do it. Please. Trust me. Coffee is one of the most important things in my life. Do it. Ah, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just, I feel like I'm hospitable. Do it. Please. Gosh, we need to throw open our doors wider. Tim, I play music, but do it. I like to pray, do it. It does not matter what it is that you bring to the table so long as you are using it because God will mix with it and you will see it do untold incredible things. It is not about how many things we are good at. It's about what we do with the things that we individually are good at. This is a message that should empower us. Please hear this truth. What you do with your gifts and your talents not only determines how your life will play out, it is a wonderful window into your view of God. Those early verses again, the man who'd received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. What you do will determine how life plays out for you and is an insight into your view of God. I want to close with this. Do you honestly believe the master was pleased with the first man for making five more bags of gold? Do you think that's what the point of the story was? He was pleased he'd made five more? Was he pleased that the second man had made two extra bags? Was he annoyed that the one didn't make any additional bags? Is this about value, size, magnitude? Is that all this story is about? Are we happy to settle on this simply just being an example of bad maths, bad investment? Or do you think maybe this is what this is about? The master's joy was in the first person discovering the potential they held and the growth that they saw through understanding their potential. The master's joy was not in the quantity, but it was in the growth of the person and the way that person used what they had. The way the second individual brought joy to the master because despite not being like the first person, not having as much as the first person, they took what they did have and they used it. And they grew in it. They took ownership of it and they flourished with it. Maybe this, the pain and frustration that the master had with the third individual. The pain and frustration he felt as they came back with what they started with, maybe it wasn't because they hadn't gained anything, but it was because they never even tried. They weren't willing to take a risk for the master. Their relationship with him was one by which they felt like it was more about not getting caught out than it was showing what they could do. I do not think this is a story simply about five, two, and one. I don't think it's as simple as maybe sometimes we read it because Jesus told it for a reason. I believe each of us is uniquely and just wonderfully made with incredible gifts and talents. And they look different to each other and praise God they do. But how you use them, whether you even use them, that's a reflection of how you view God. I do not believe that there was just a joy in the fact that the master came back and had more from the first two. I think it was watching those two explain what they did, tell him, this is what I did with that investment, this is how it grew, these are the conversations I had, this is the person that I feel like I am now. That is where the joy comes in growing. Those of you who are parents will know that, that sometimes even in the times that you have to bring discipline to a child, there is something of growth in that moment. When the next time that situation arises and they do something different, there is a joy in the growth and development of who they are. That's what this is about. How do you see your relationship with God? Because if you trust him, that he is good, that he'll be there for you, that he wants you to flourish and grow, that he's gifted you individually and uniquely, if you trust that, then you will run with that. But if you feel like he's looking to catch you out, waiting for you to make a mistake, you'll just see your worldview shrink. You'll feel like your opportunities are reducing. You'll start to question whether that gift is even any good, if it's worth using or not. Please hear this, just as we begin to close. You have untold potential. From the youngest to the oldest. From the wisest to the most foolish. Each of us has the most untold potential if we are willing to use it. And let God in and let his spirit work through it. Suddenly just opening a door for someone becomes an opportunity for them to meet with Jesus. Everything has untold potential when we start to channel it and use it for God. We can multiply and multiply and multiply and multiply. And the story could go on and on and on for us. Or or you could ignore everything I said. And you could blame me for bringing the wrong message. And actually you've got nothing to give. God's not that good to you. Life's dealt you a bad hand. You could shut down. You could do nothing with what it is you've got. But hear this, God's plan for you is the first option. God's plan for your life is the first. That you would grow in relationship with him, you would trust him more, you would see him give more opportunities, develop and grow who you are in him, as well as the gifts and
1: abilities that you have. That's God's plan for you.